Many years ago, um, in order to play the organ, maybe you know this, maybe you didn't, I didn't know this, uh, you need someone to manually pump the air um, with like big bellows, so like a big air pumper, right, to, make the, to have the air flow for the organ. Now we, I think now you just plug them in, if I remember right. Uh, it's very simple to make the sounds. Uh, one time ago, there was a very uh, accomplished organ player. Uh, he was giving a concert, and he was very remarkable. He was very good. And after each song, of course, the audience would go, wow, this guy's really good. And he would stand and bow and do what organists do. Uh, he had one more song to go. So before his final song, he stood up and said, I shall now play. And he said the name of the song. And everyone sat down and got excited and sat. And he was ready. He got settled in, got his feet ready. And he pressed the pedal or he pressed the keys and nothing happened. He kind of looked around and he did it again. And then in the back behind the, behind the, the building, you hear uh, someone yell, Say we! You get it? Never mind. We will now play. Actually, anyway, it wasn't that good of a joke. The point is, is the guy you can't hear in the background is the one that supplies the air so he can play. I know, it's a stupid joke. It wasn't even a joke. It's just bad illustration. The point is, the unseen person was most crucial for his work to be seen. If it weren't for him... He would just be playing nothing, right? That's the point. So it is in the body of Christ in the church. Uh, Paul was very clear that the body is a body. Uh, he says in this text that each one of us individually is the body of Christ, and then together we make it up together. So each one of you is a part of the body, and you are, so you are the body, and you're individually members of it. And as a body, not every part is equally seen. Uh, not every member is visible or gathers most of the attention. In fact, Paul shows us today that a lot of the members in a church that actually are not seen are most important for those who are seen. They're actually more dependent on the ones that are not seen, just like the organ player and the guy with the bellows in the back. So each member of the church is to be equipped by God. They are part of Christ's body, and they are necessary for the body to operate well. So today, I pray the Lord would encourage us to consider, to be mindful, uh, to rejoice over the gifts that each person in Christ has in our gathering, and that those who are unseen would, one, be happy that God does see them, and that we would recognize that they are crucial to our gathering. That's what I hope you would understand today. So there's three ways that God shows that he arranges the body for our interdependence, I guess you could say is a good word upon one another. So look at verse 21 through 22. This is, each member is indispensable. In the first half, if you remember, uh, we went through the first section of this body analogy, and Paul talked about one member looking at himself and saying, man, I'm just nothing. I'm not an eye. I'm just a little old ear. And he was very sorrowful about himself. Now the illustration goes even more forward, and instead of looking at himself and feeling inadequate, now you have a member of the body looking at self and saying, I'm better than that guy. I don't need him. I don't need this person. I don't need this person. So the thought that one member's gifts carries the whole church, Paul is saying, we, we ought not act that way. That's incorrect. Uh, others' contributions are equally essential. So look at verse 21. The eye cannot say, nor again the head to the feet cannot say, I have no need of you. So one member, again, believes that he is maybe self-sufficient is a good word, that he's capable within himself of doing what he needs to do. 
So it seemed to be happening in Corinth with those who had gifts that were more flashy, more showy, were puffing out their chests, and they were belittling those who were less prominent. Uh, if you even just look in chapter 13, which we're going to be at next week, all the way to chapter 14, verse 25, Paul addresses one of the, the more flashy, showy gifts of speaking in tongues and says, we need, to, we need to talk about how this needs to work in the church because there's so many issues. But think about it. If you're in Corinth, let's say that you were in Corinth. So 2,000 years ago, you were in Corinth, and you had people in your church who were gifted with miracles of healing, speaking in foreign languages all of a sudden, be able to understand it. You can do miraculous signs. What do you think would get the most attention? The person healing someone or the preacher? I think it's a pretty obvious question, isn't it? That cool guy healing people, that's cool, right? Or perhaps who would get more attention, the one speaking languages or the one that's administering what's going on? Which gift would hit the Corinthian times or the Corinth Chronicle? What do you think? Well, it's obvious, the flashy, cool gifts. Those are the cool ones, those we want to see, right? It is possible then to be a part of the body, to have a more presentable, uh, more seen and a more prominent gift, and to then fall into the trap of feeling superior, having pride. I carry the church mentality. That's very, it's very common. That's what Paul is addressing here. And if you're like me, you're, you're less prone to say things like that out loud. I doubt anybody here would say, well, we don't need him. Mm-hmm. You never say that. I don't think so. I think we're more prone to maybe say it in our heart. Well, he's gone, so sorry, I didn't even anyway. Right? It's kind of more the view I think is more reconcilable to us, that we may say these things inside or we feel sufficient. So here's a question you need to ask. Would it make sense to see that the gifts of the Spirit that He works within us to showboat and brag about them as being superior? Remember that these are gifts. Uh, you didn't choose these. You didn't walk into a store and say, two of those, an extra one of those, and give me some teaching. It's not how it happened, right? You didn't earn them. You didn't purchase them. They're actually being, they've been given to you, and they're being carried out by God's power as it is. So every spiritual gift is not you. It's actually the Spirit working inside you. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul tells you this verbatim. To each is given the manifestation of the what? Well, of the Spirit, not of you, so it's not even you doing it. So yeah, you're doing it, you're using your gift, but it's not you they're seeing. They're seeing the Spirit of Christ, right? The Holy Spirit, that's what, that's what they're seeing. So you can think that is to be off base. The same is true in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same person. Oh no, it's Spirit who apportions as He will. So again, this is, these gifts are not only from God, but they are carried out by God Himself. And the effectiveness, the fruit, the use, the desire to use them, the origins to have them, the ways we use them rightly are all from God. 1 Corinthians 4 says, why do you brag about anything different? You were given everything that you have. Or Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen, including spiritual gifts. Look at verse 22, they look at Paul says instead. On the contrary, so rather, you can't say this, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually, Paul says, are indispensable. So this is a tremendous text. I hope you feel the weight of what Paul's saying. Uh, 
the logic of heaven, the upside down way that God does things. God always does things the way that we don't think. If you don't say amen, you ought to say ouch, because you know, it's never the way I think. It's literally never the way I think he should do things. He never does things that way. But notice the key phrase in verse 22, the parts of the body that what? Are they weaker? They seem to be, right? It's how we perceive. It's not, what, it's not what God is saying. It's what we are saying. We're saying, well, those seem to be indispensable. They seem to be weaker. It's the way that God works. Uh, John MacArthur talks about an illustration about how you can, you can live without one arm. Lop it off and it's seen. You can live without it. You can live without a leg. You can live without a foot or fingers. Those things are seen. They're prominent and you can live, you actually live without them. But some of the most vital parts are unseen that you cannot live without. You can't see your heart, but you can't live without a heart. You can't see your liver or your lungs or your brain, but your function would be either dead or lessened very dramatically. And Paul's saying, well, what gets the most attention? Well, the flashy parts, the hands, the eyes, the face, right? The, the people working miracles, these amazing gifts that Paul's talking about. He said, instead... God has actually designed the human body to be sustained and coupled with the hidden parts. So it is in the church. The parts that are hidden, the people that are hidden, the gifts that are not seen or, or prominent are actually the reason why the gifts that are prominent, that are seen, function well. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, we don't think that way, but God orders things in such a way. But you know this to be true. You know that God works things in a way that you don't understand. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read you a text that you probably know very well. If you remember me preaching, that's one of my favorite parts. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, uh, Paul writes this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So God is not looking for the all-stars, right? Um, this would be a good thing to do if you do with children downstairs. Here, here's a good idea. Have them all line up for something. All right, who wants a piece of whatever? They all line up. Who gets first in line typically? The strong, fast, tougher kid, right? That's okay. What you should do is then circle to the back of the line and say, let's start in the back. Because that's not how we think. That's how the Lord seems to think, isn't it? Doesn't he say to have faith like a child? simple, humble faith? Or perhaps you, you, you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the what? The strong in spirit, the studs. No, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who are persecuted. So those who are persecuted, who are poor, are the ones that God delights in. God doesn't delight in the lofty and the prominent and the strong and the flashy and the first. He delights in the runt of the litter. And why is that? It's because in doing so, those who are proud, who lift themselves up, they take away attention that God deserves. James chapter 4 says this, says that God opposes the proud. That's a shocking statement. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So those of lofty thought, those who puff out their chest, who desire to be flashy, God is actually opposed to them. He, human marriages don't impress him much, not at all. So then, as a church, we are to act like God. Think of what happens. So if you think of Father, Son, and Spirit, what it, who are they all about? Well, the Father says, glorify the Son. And the Son says, I came to glorify the Father. 
The Spirit is sent by the Father to magnify the Son, to do the will of the Father, not His will, but the Father's will. Do you see how even, even God acts this way? He came not for His own glory, but for His Father's. And the Father said, no, I'm sending you so you worship Christ. And they're all for one another. So instead, in the church, we ought not have all stars. The star of the church ought to be Christ. And all of our gifts are meant to lift Him up higher so we would sink into the shadows. And those gifts, those members of the body of the church who seem to be indispensable are the ones who found joy and contentment to actually sit in the shadows and let God get the spotlight. Um, this isn't my notes, but I'm going to use it as an illustration. I'm sorry if it's uncomfortable. Uh, Joyce has sent me, I think, two cards since I've been here. One of them was when I first started, and I st- we still have it. And it was the sweetest little note, just, thank you for being our pastor. We are happy you're here. That was it. And I love that so much because I was just like, man, I hope I'm doing well. I get a card from Joyce in the mail. Did anybody know that happened? No. Indispensable. Well, now they all know. So sorry, I ruined your surprise. Now they all know. But that's, the, that's, the, that's not getting any, any spotlight time. That seems indispensable to us, but it's not. Uh, one commentator said this, simple trades are those which, which, or, or which are least, least dispensable. Sorry. A nation may exist without astronomers or philosophers or scientists, but the day laborers are essential to the existence of man. So likewise, as a church, as Christians, we recognize that hidden obedience in using your gift is very precious in God's sight. Believe it or not, we actually all depend on those who are unseen. Where would the ministry of preaching be without people who pray secretly? fall flat every Sunday. Maybe it does. (laughs) I don't know. It would fall flat. Where would the spread of the gospel be without faithful laymen? Guys, the word gets a lot quicker when you go to work than it does from here. Do you know that? A lot quicker. When each member realizes they are interdependent upon the other, the indispensable nature of their gift is shown by being obedient. So may we then resist the temptation to say, I don't, need, I don't need his opinion on this. I don't need their view on that. My way is fine. Our way is fine. Perhaps the brother who is seeking to give input is the area that you need input on. So may we seek to grow and form and increase together and to be self-reliant, not self-sufficient. Number two, look at verses 23 through 26. So each member is to now rightly honor one another. So the analogy of the body continues with Paul. So the, those body parts that aren't as prominent or distinguished are actually shown to be highly honored because they are concealed. Likewise, Paul says that members of the church that are not shown are to be honored and valued and treasured. Look at verse 23. Um, I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. It's very, very helpful. Here's what it says. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. So Paul's saying the way that you dress as a person, the way you dress reflects that you distinguish between honoring and concealing. We don't typically cover our hands. We don't cover our faces, cover our eyes. But we do cover parts of our body that shouldn't be shown, that should be concealed because we do value those parts of our body. So Paul's saying, counter to our thinking, the parts we actually conceal are actually more important than the parts that we show. 
Why? Well, because you hide treasure. You don't let me open. You conceal what's valuable, right? You hide treasure. Likewise, we cover with our apparel parts of our body that are not to be seen because we value them. And again, this is the way of God's kingdom, isn't it? Where was Jesus born? Rome. No. Nazareth. Do you know how big Nazareth was? So small, we, don't, we have no idea where it is. We have no clue. Like, it's somewhere over there. We don't really know where. It's hard to find. Jesus didn't choose military men or athletes. He chose, fisher, he chose fishermen and tax collectors and his sinners. Likewise, Jesus did not come for those who think they are righteous, but for those who know they are sinners. So the people that God saves are not those who think, I'm actually doing all right. I'm in pretty good standing. I'm fine. Jesus said he did not come for them. He came for people who recognize that they are sick. They need a physician, he said. And in doing so, those are the ones that God delights to save. Those who realize they are not okay. They need to be converted. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The only people that Jesus will ever save are those who believe that they are the worst person that they know. And if not, he did not come for you. He came for those who realize they need Christ. Think again how Jesus died. He was sentenced to death on a cross. Do you know how you die on a cross? Naked and exposed. Mocked. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose from the dead and was witnessed first by who? Women. It's not a good way to sell a story in the first century. It's not very popular. Instead, the Bible says the humble will be exalted. So friends, I want to tell you today that simple, quiet obedience is adored by God. Childlike faith is very precious in God's sight. 1 Peter 3 says something stunning, I think, to a culture that doesn't live this way. It says that a wife who is quiet, submissive, loves her husband, honors her husband, and is just a simple wife, brings great glory to God. Did you know that? Isn't that stunning? You don't have to get a diploma. It's okay if you did, but you don't have to. God's glory is seen and magnified uniquely when it is only seen by him. A uh, question, do you guys know why there are beautiful flowers planted in the woods that we will probably never find? Because there's species of flowers that we just stumble upon like, wow, I didn't know that was there. Do you know why God does that? Or why did he create the hundreds of unknown and undiscovered species of fish in the Mariana Trench, which is like the deepest part of the universe? There's so many, we have no idea what's down there. There's tons we don't know. Or why would God create more stars than grains of sand on all the shores of all the beaches? Why would he do that? We're never going to find them all. Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. All of these things give God glory, not because man sees it, but because God sees it. Do you understand the difference? Something is beautiful and glorifies God, not because man sees it, but because God sees it and God is pleased with it. That is, again, that is not how we think. It is the exact opposite. What is not seen, God is delighted in. More often than not. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 6. You probably know this passage about praying. What does Jesus say about how to act according to how the Pharisees act? You should act differently. Look, at, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But when you give, give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving may be on the front page, on YouTube. No, in secret. And when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Act like you're not fasting. Don't walk around saying, man, I'm so hungry, I'm fasting all day. Be quiet. Don't show it, right? That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So do you see how God is calling us to be? So may we not beat our chest and be proud of how much we give, how much I serve, how much I act in obedience, how much they don't. May we never think that way. That is demonic. That is evil thinking. Instead, may we look to and know that one, God sees it and is to be praised, not me. Number two, may we honor those who faithfully give, who are obedient members and who who actually desire to be unseen. So here's something that maybe you've done. Maybe you give on a regular basis to the church. Maybe you pray earnestly for preaching, for the prayer list, for members. Maybe you minister to your neighbors about the gospel. Maybe you simply taught your children and grandchildren the gospel and no one sees it. You work faithfully at your job. You act like Christ at your, at your work and no one knows about it. Those are the things that are the hidden flowers that nobody sees. So do they have any value? They do, not because we see, but because God sees it. I want to encourage you that to be faithful in your local church is more important than being seen to be faithful. Your quiet, non-front-page news glorifies Christ, strengthens the church, and advances the kingdom of God. D.L. Moody said this, There are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do little things. So why did he do this? Look at verses 24 and 26. God, but God, has so composed the body. So do you see how this then creates a a necessity of interdependence of, I actually need my brothers. I can't just be a lone eyeball rolling around the floor. I need my other people. I need my other brothers. That's what Paul is saying. He binds one to the other to create unity. He binds the strong prominent biceps to the unseen and forgotten tendons. He fixes strong legs to little tiny toes. Little toes. Where would the World Series be without those who set the bases? I think it'd be a problem. Or a basketball team without their shoelaces. Or a major company without their janitorial staff. Likewise, a church is dependent upon secret prayer upon those who are faithful in their homes with their kids and their grandchildren. The gospel is expanded better by you being faithful at work and being faithful in your home. By lay men and women doing the work of ministry, of being faithful believers. Charles Spurgeon said this, Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man in the church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so long as God is glorified. That's a good one. Better be a doormat. 
Well, why? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 25. So that there may be how much division? Like a little. No, Paul says no division in the body. But we have, we have the same care one for another. So you exist here to increase and encourage others. You should go out of your way to care and honor those who are hidden and concealed in these ways. This will automatically squash pride and division and jealousy. Uh, Martin Luther gives this illustration of the sun and the tree. So think of the sun. Uh, don't look at it because you'll be blind. But we all see the sun. It's beautiful. It gets all the attention. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful day. We love the sun. And he compares the sun to a tree. The tree saying, well, I'm not a sun. I'm not bright. I'm actually a darker color. And the sun, likewise, doesn't look at the tree and say, I'm a little tree. I'm bright. And the sun says this, that he's going to shine brighter so that the tree will grow more green. Friends, so does with us. We must be those who exist to increase the fruitfulness and the growth of others. May we care for them so that they would grow and flourish here more. Jesus said he did not come to be served. Why did he come? To serve. Isn't that true of the church? The strong should lay down their lives for the weak as Christ laid down his life for us. So here's what you should do. I would encourage you to pray and encourage the good and faithful believers at this congregation who don't feel that way. May you pray for the increase and blessing of their lives, not your life. Do you pray for those in this congregation? Do you pray that God would do better with them than he would with you? That's what Paul is saying. So may God prosper them and neglect us. That would be our joy. So a true sign of a healthy church then is primarily an increase in the unseen spiritual growth. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul's saying we should be so unified, so honoring, so caring for one another, so invested, as Pam said this morning, so aware of those around us, that when they rejoice, we rejoice. That's a win for all of us. When they suffer, we suffer. Um, if you ever had a toothache, you know every part of your body hurts all of a sudden. Every, everything hurts. Everything's awful. You can't walk. You're, the shock just kills you, right? So too, one small suffering member should draw us to comfort and to weep and to encourage them. Their joys are our joys. Their losses are our losses. Lastly, verses 27 through 31, Paul says that each member makes up the body of Christ. So we see we're supposed to be interdependent. We see, this, we see this is how God has designed the body to give honor to those who are not seen. And now Paul's going to show us that he's actually, God is actually, each member makes up the body of Christ together. So finally, Paul brings us to the conclusion of this body. In verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So again, think of, the way the body is, there's many differences. Some in this church in Corinth feel inadequate. Some feel superior. Some are falling short. Some need encouragement. Some are gifted in one way. Some are gifted in another. And yet Paul says, I don't know if Paul speaks Southern, but this is what he's saying in the Greek. Now, y'all, y'all are the body of Christ. He's saying this is the plural you. Y'all are the body of Christ. And you individually are members of it. If, you, if, not, if you've not heard a thing I've said this morning, I would encourage you to listen to this last point. 
I want to remind you of the high cost of being a Christian. Paul just said, if you're a Christian, you individually are a part of the body. You are to represent Christ. Being a Christian, being joined to Christ by faith, yielding your life to him, the Bible says, will actually not cost you a little, not cost you Sunday mornings, not even cost you just a little bit of time. It will cost you everything. I want to read you this passage in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says this. Now great, cow, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all those who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going on to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what's it mean to be a Christian? It means you no longer have your own life. He does. You no longer own your own free time. He does. Your money is not your own. It is his. Your time is no longer your time. It is his. Your future is no longer yours. It is Christ's. Your desires are no longer yours. They are his. To be a Christian in the world means you have utterly forsaken your life and fully committed your life to following, treasuring, and worshiping Christ. Jesus died to secure redemption and to and rose to give everlasting life. So the question I must ask you this morning is this. Does your life reflect that commitment? You will have all of Christ or you will have none of him. You are the body of Christ, individually members of it. This is a high calling. To be a Christian is not like being an American. It's not like being a fan of baseball. It's not like being a member of a gym. To be a Christian means that all you do, whatever it is you do, all that you are, all you're driven by and towards is the greatness of Jesus Christ dying for sinners. That is why you exist. And if that does not describe you, Jesus commands you to do one thing primarily, that is to bow down and to receive him by faith, to turn from your sins and to receive him by faith. And here's the, the, the thing. This all sounds so weighty, and it is. But what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy. It's easy. My burden is light. He promises never to cast you out. So therefore, if this is not you, you must repent and turn to Christ now. Likewise, as being part of this church, I want to give you a weighty understanding as well. What we do here as a church matters. What we sing, what we teach, what is organized, everything we do echoes into eternity. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
you know what Paul just said? What we do here tells angels and demons what we think about God. You think your Sunday morning doesn't matter? Brothers and sisters, I encourage you. Be gripped by what Sunday morning is. It's a, it's a joy, but it is eternally important. So do you gather this way? This is why belonging to a local church is so weighty and yet so precious and full of grace that God chose me. He chose me to do that? Little old me? Yeah, he did. You belong to the Son's body. His Spirit equipped you. So do you see then how important biblical membership is? How precious, friends, how precious singing at church is? How precious preaching and teaching and evangelism and giving and gathering and organizing is? It is not for yourself. It is for Christ. So may we gather each Sunday here, hear me, as if this were your last Sunday. Because one day it will be your last. And I want my Sunday to echo so well that God does say, well done. Your Lord's day was a Lord's day. And look what Paul does. He unfolds first in verses 28 through 31. He's showing us there's different members, but they are organized according to his call. Very quickly here. God has appointed, look at this, first apostles. Those are those who saw Jesus rise from the dead. They're the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. They proclaim the gospel. If you want to know who they are, look at the book of Acts. That's who they are, right? And we have most of what Paul writ for us here, or his letters. Most of the Bible is Paul. <laughs> this office of the apostle is gone. After the book of Acts, there's no longer apostles mentioned, like in First and Second Timothy and Titus, where there's churches. Paul's not saying, have an apostle. They're all gone, because they probably all passed, or this office no longer requires. So a true church then gathers on the authority of the apostles' preaching. Well, what is that? I'm glad you asked. It's in your lap. This is what the apostles preached. Number two, it says prophets, those who spoke the word of God to God's people without the New Testament. So remember that the early church, they didn't have Paul's letters yet. They were still being sent and written. So they had prophets who, were spoke, who God spoke to to direct his people. Well, instead of that, we have the word. Third, teachers. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, he lists a similar list as he does here, and he adds shepherds slash pastors, depending on your translation. So the leadership in a church has been given to pastors and to deacons. They are to instruct, encourage, teach, serve, come behind, come alongside, and lead the body further in line to the head. Uh, this morning in James chapter 3, Don Ray read James 3.1, which is a warning. It says, not many of you should become teachers for that reason. So notice then that Paul gives these offices before gifts. So meaning that God does have roles of leadership in a church. However, the gifts are not less. They serve the good of the church. Notice what Paul didn't put first. Flashy people, right? He put apostles, teachers, preachers, right? And then he puts those flashy gifts after to show the Corinthians it's not about that. It's not about flash. So just read verse 28 all the way through. These are all listed because they are not essential for a church to exist. The first three are. We should expect diversity in verses 29 and 30. There are diverse gifts. And in verse 31, Paul says that we should all desire the, a higher gift. Do you know what the higher thing Paul says you should desire is? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What's, the, what's that all about? Love. So brothers, a true church exists where the gospel is proclaimed, 
where members gather to hear and encourage one another, where membership and ordinances are taken together. Flash and flare do not make a church. Not having them does not make us not one. Having them does not make us one. Instead, we gather, we speak to uplift Christ together with our individual gifts so that God gets the attention, not us. So may we treasure and glorify Christ together. Let's pray.